Hello, everyone, and welcome to Staffer. I'm your host, Jim Papa, a partner at Global Strategy Group and a former staffer. Uh, This is the show about people who work in government or politics at any level. Uh, We hear their stories. We hear how they got into the job, what they learned from it, and what they took from the job into the rest of their career. I'm pleased to present to you my conversation with Republican Congressman Tom Cole of Oklahoma. Congressman Cole began his career on a campus as a professor of history and politics. He ran himself for elected office uh, in 1988, where he was elected to the Oklahoma State Senate. He first came to Washington as uh, executive director of the NRCC, and he held some other roles here in Washington as staffer. He was secretary of state, uh, the governor of Oklahoma, and he also served as chief of staff of the RNC before being elected to the U.S. House himself in 2002. Today, Tom Cole is a member of the House Appropriations Committee. He is the ranking Republican on the subcommittee on labor, health, and human services. I spoke with Tom on August 6th, remotely, of course, in light of the circumstances. I am so pleased to welcome to the show today uh, someone who I got to know when I was working for President Obama in the Office of Legislative Affairs, and he was assigned to me. He was one of the members who I had um, responsibility for and really got to know well and worked closely with. Um, Welcome to the show, Congressman Tom Cole. Hey, it's great to be with you, Jim. It it really is um, uh, my honor to be talking with you uh, again today. I I reflect very fondly on the work we did together um, uh, during that period of time, both to pass the Tribal Law and Order Act and uh, funding for the Cobell Settlement, both of which you were a champion for and whipped for and got uh, Republican votes for. And both of those were very meaningful victories. And um, it's a nice opportunity to, to say thank you again. Well, thank you. And uh, look, uh, no question that President Obama was better on tribal issues. Uh, he used to hate it when I'd say this. You're better than any president since Richard Nixon. Uh, but uh, he was tremendous. I actually think I'm the only Republican on Capitol Hill that has five uh, uh, pictures of President Obama in my, my office because he did so many great things uh, like Cobell, like Tribal Law and Order, like Violence Against Women Act. Uh, you know, all those things had enormous tribal implications and, uh, you know, expanded tribal sovereignty and, and uh, uh, frankly, made life better in a lot of communities that uh, are, are too often neglected. So very much appreciate uh, all the president, all you did and your team did uh, in those areas. Well, likewise, they were very much shared victories. Um and through that process, I got to know uh, a little bit about you, but in preparation for this interview, I also learned a bit more, um, uh, specifically about your parents. And your mother had two characteristics that were very much passed on to you. One was, of course, her heritage. She, like you, uh, was a member of the Chickasaw tribe and passed on its culture and history to you. Um, and you know, today it is fair to say that you are known as one of the most fierce advocates, if not the fiercest advocate for Native Americans in the Congress. And she also passed on uh, a passion for politics. She was a state senator uh, and and mayor of Moore, where you grew up. Um, but she wasn't alone. Your father, in, in terms of public service, your father spent 20 years in the United States Air Force and later worked as a civilian federal employee at Tinker Air Force Base. I wanted to start uh, describing uh, their backgrounds for our listeners because I'd love to hear you talk about what you 
took away from them in terms of public service and what dinner conversations were like? Well, they were uh, terrific parents and they'd both grown up in depression era Oklahoma uh, and uh, actually were both Democrats uh, until uh, my mom began to travel, obviously with my father from base to base. And uh, back then Oklahoma was very much a one party sort of old Southern style Democrat. And as she traveled around, she came to the conclusion that uh, every place she saw there was a uh, an active two-party system. For instance, we were stationed in uh, um, uh, in um, Scott Air Force Base in Illinois, and uh, later McGuire Air Force Base in New Jersey, and Dover Air Force Base. Those places had you know substantial Democratic and Republican presence. She she thought government was better and worked better, and she promised herself when she came back, she would naturally sort of lean conservative anyway, that if Oklahoma was still overwhelmingly a one-party state, she would get actively involved. So she actually became a Republican. My dad uh, remained a, a Democrat until, uh, uh, you know, her political career really began. And uh, so the, the discussion was quite spirited around the table. Uh, but uh, she prevailed in the end, and the family became a Republican uh, family. But, uh, you know, they, probably more than most families, you grow up in a military family, you're really focused on foreign affairs. Uh, you know, I, I, anytime something bad would happen, an alert would go on. This is Cold War era, 50s uh, into around 1960 or so. So it probably gave me a, a, a broader appreciation for international affairs. And because of the travel, even though uh, military bases are, you know, have a lot of continuity, you're still exposed to different worlds, if you will, uh, just by watching the local news and reading the local newspaper. And my parents were always, both of them, uh, very interested in public affairs and uh, very interested in the current debates uh, of the time. So uh, it was a it was a great dinner table. And uh, my mom was a, a very gifted politician, a lot of political insights, and really the family on the Native American side have been very political. My great-great-grandfather was the clerk of the Chickasaw Supreme Court. My great-grandfather was the treasurer of the Chickasaw Nation at the time, the Dawes Commission and statehood. Uh, so they had been uh, actively involved in tribal politics and had been sort of intermediaries, in a sense, between the tribe and the larger non-Native population around them. And my mom was actually the first Native American woman ever elected to the state Senate in Oklahoma. So uh, uh, that long political interest uh, made dinner a very interesting time every day. Yeah, that's fascinating. And what do you think made them good at connecting with people? Uh, my mom was just a natural uh, in terms of she was a people person. And uh, I remember once uh, after my dad had retired out, my mom was working as a grocery clerk. Uh, at the first supermarket in, in Moore, Oklahoma, where I now live. I mean, Moore back then was a city of 1,700 people. Today it's uh, close to 70,000. Uh, but uh, she, uh, the, the local banker just got to know her and watched her and then came and recruited her to go to work at the bank to open the first drive-in window teller or become the first drive-in window teller in Moore, Oklahoma. I used to tell her that was her real political base because she ended up cashing all the truck driver's checks and giving chiclets to the kids and uh, and dog bones <laughs> to the dogs. And so everybody loved Helen Cole, but she was, she liked people. 
uh, she enjoyed uh, conversation. I still get uh, all over my district, uh, and particularly in my hometown. I mean, I may be a congressman in more Oklahoma. I'm nothing more than Helen Cole's little boy. Uh, that uh, so she just had that knack. Uh, you know, I consider her one of the best political figures I ever worked for, just in sheer understanding of people. She became very. Uh, he co-chaired the Bush campaign. Was very close to uh, uh, both Bushes, but particularly uh, Bush 43. Uh, and uh, uh, so, I don't know, she just had this ability uh, to connect with people and I think partly uh, identify with people. I mean, very modest means she grew up as a, as a uh, with a single mother through the Depression uh, in very humble circumstances. My dad, again, very much a blue collar family. Either of them had the opportunity to go to college um, so, uh, but they just, uh, they were, you know, both able to relate well to people, but no one quite like her and, uh, just, uh, remarkable people skills. Well, it, you know, based on, on your description of her and, and your father and, and your grandparents, it seems like it would have been a total natural that you'd be in this, uh, profession today, but that isn't where, you know, you necessarily, um, could have ended up because after high school, you went to Grinnell College, and then you got advanced degrees in British history from Yale. You studied on a Fulbright scholarship at the University of London, and then earned your PhD in British history at the University of Oklahoma, and uh, spent a time as a college professor. That life could have been, um, you know, yours, but you got back into public service um, as district director, as I understand it, for former Congressman Mickey Edwards. Do I have that well, right? Well, I actually got in a little bit before then. And it, again, my family was the key to this. I mean, my mother really shaped my life. And in, in 1976, uh, uh, I was a graduate student. Like all graduate students, I was totally self-absorbed and focused on uh, what I was doing. And my mother was recruited to run for office uh, in um uh, more and as a state representative, which she served in before she became a state senator. And uh, I did a few things in the campaign, not very many. Uh, and she lost. And I always tell people the worst place on the planet to be is your mother's watch party the night you lose and uh, you haven't done very much. And but and she lost close. There's just 49 percent, a heavily Democratic district. And we had liquor by the drink on the ballot, which brought out every Baptist Democrat uh, known to man in the district. And uh, that's what beat her. Um, but I remember looking at numbers and thinking about it and telling her, you know, if you'll run again, I'll learn how to run a campaign and I bet you could win. And I didn't think she'd ever run again. or I wouldn't have made that commitment, I'm sure. But <laughs> about 14 months later, I'm in London on a Fulbright and she calls and says, I'm running. When are you coming home? And so we... <laughs> We laughed. She knew I was coming back in June of 1978. So I came back. Uh, I was teaching European history courses as a graduate at OU, a graduate assistant, and uh, went and told the uh, department, look, I was uh, going to keep the teaching because I needed the money, but I was suspending work on my dissertation so I could run my mom's campaign. And uh, she, uh, they, uh, they were really very nice about it actually and let me do that and she won and uh, you know when i was in high school i played uh, high school football played college football at grinnell and you'll know this better than most uh, 
uh, you know, politics is very much a team sport. I always enjoyed that. And I, a watch party is a lot like a locker room after a game, uh, whether you win or lose. It's incredibly bonding. You fought together for something you believe in or someone you believe in. Win or lose, relationships are built that uh, don't go away. And so I like that. So I started just running campaigns for fun while I was in graduate school. And finally, a friend of mine, uh, dad, who I played football with, runs for county commissioner. And uh, I said, well, Mr. Wilson, I, I can't do it. He asked me to run as a special election, six-week deal. I said, this is a critical point. And he looks at me and said, well, I'll pay you. And I said, you can make money doing this? Uh, and uh, so he did, and we won. And uh, about a year later, uh, I got a call out of the blue from the state party chairman in December of 19. Uh, uh, 79. Uh, and, um, he said, Hey, I hear you're pretty good at this. How'd you like to take a year out of academic life? And so, and, and come be the executive director for the state party in Oklahoma. And that was Reagan running. Uh, Don Nichols was running for the Senate. Who My mother become very good friends with him in the state legislature together. So I, I took out what I thought would be a year and just literally never went back and ended up in 82 working for um, uh, a long shot governor's race. We got killed uh, in the general. And then uh, Mickey Edwards hired me right after that. So, uh, but my mother's the one who really got me into politics. Uh, and uh, a lot of it was just frankly, after she won, listening to her talk about what, um, you know, the political maneuvering at the state capitol and what the issues were and who the personalities were. And I was fascinated uh, by it. And I got to see it through her eyes and, uh, it just, you know, it was really an accidental career. It wasn't planned. My poor wife uh, ended up marrying into something she certainly didn't intend to marry, marry into. Uh, <laughs> well, but all worked out. Yeah, it sure did. You went on to have a very successful political consulting practice uh, and company. Um, yeah, still yeah, uh, still out there. I still own a piece of it. I just don't get to do it anymore. But uh, uh, I, I know they do pretty that. well because the dividends come in. That I did not know that. Well, um, as I understand, you helped a whole bunch of people. I'm just going to list some of them. Uh, Governor Keating, Representative J.C. Watts, Tom Coburn, first congressman, then senator, Frank Lucas, Congresswoman Mary Fallon, later governor, Steve Largent, Wes Watkins, Chip Pickering, Hawaii Governor Linda Lingle. You have been a part of so many campaigns, successful and obviously unsuccessful ones, too. What makes a good campaign staff? You know, uh, first of all, in terms of staff, uh, our staff, are, you've got to be dedicated to the person that you're working for. I mean, you really do need to believe in that person. And I think because uh, you won't push yourself hard enough, uh, you know, if you don't do that second, uh, you got to be able to work with other well, others well. Again, this is a team sport. And uh uh, you know, you've got to recognize sometimes you're not going to be the quarterback on the team. Uh, sometimes you may just be holding the dummy, but you've got to understand uh, how teams work and what the political dynamics are. And you have to understand that, uh, you know, your job is not to fight one another, which a lot of campaigns do. Uh, it's to, uh, uh, you know, compete with, uh, you know, the, the other side. So, uh, uh, you know, avoiding turf battles, uh, being willing to play whatever roles assigned at what other time, those kind of things that 
you know, make a good football player, a good football player, a good basketball player, a good basketball player, uh, not the physical attributes, but the, the attitude that there's a, a goal, there's something that's bigger than myself here. Uh, and uh, I need to work with others to achieve that goal to me is, is absolutely indispensable. And then after that experience, I mean, the more you do this stuff, the better you get at it and the more relationships you have. And that's another thing. It's a pretty small world um, in a lot of ways. And uh, it's uh, preeminently a relationship business in my view. Uh, and, you know, you tend over time to remember, uh, you know, I was in the foxhole with that, uh, that lady or that guy, and uh, they always kept the gun pointed out, not in. Uh, they always worked well and uh, uh, they they could uh, subordinate themselves to the good of the candidate, or the good of the campaign, or the good of the team. Um, you build those and then you trust those people uh, over a lifetime. I'm still working with, uh, you know, people that I've worked with. I mean, my firm does my polling. So managing partners been uh, my partner for over 30 years. Uh, you know, my, my fundraiser is a guy that uh, I've also known for about 40 years and, and, um, you know, he was chief staff for Governor Keating. He was uh, one of my successors as state chairman at Oklahoma. So you build relationships over time um, and uh, they, they pay off. And so I look for people that have those kind of skills um, and see, uh, again, that kind of uh, uh, or exhibit that kind of ability to work with people. Yeah. The, you know, I do think politics is is unique in some ways in the bonds that you can form with people when you're in those trenches because you know uh victories are very public and enjoyable for that reason but losses or mistakes are also very public and painful for that reason that's absolutely true and uh, and a lot of effort as you know has gone into this this isn't something you find out the answer for in a week you know in some cases these things are multi-year uh, certainly many, many months of hard work and toil. And it is a very public business uh, in that regard. And uh, again, you do learn the people that uh, you, you feel like you can work with over time. You also learn, honestly, who you respect on the other side as a competitor. Uh, it's, it's just sort of like, you know, good football players, no good football players, even the ones that aren't on their team. And, um, and I remember actually in 2005, uh, one of your old bosses, Rahm Emanuel, and I were elected to uh, uh, at the same time. I guess this would have been, yeah, 2005. We were elected in 2002 and became good friends. Um, and we were sitting on the House floor and I said, well, you know, you're going to be the next DCCC chairman. And he goes, oh, no, that's not going to happen. Uh, you know, Leader Pelosi's not a big fan of mine. And I said, look, it's uh, you don't have to like George Patton you, to know you need George Patton. They need <laughs> Patton, uh, and it's going to be you. Uh, and, and sure enough, it was. And, of course, as you know, he had a brilliant year and switched the majority. But uh, uh, so, I mean, I just I like that part of the game. And then just like I like the governing part, not just for the people I work with on my side of the aisle, but on those occasions when you can actually work as we did in Native American affairs, you were kind enough to point out, and some other areas we can actually get to a deal uh, and, uh, you know, get things done. Uh, sometimes you don't have to do that. You have the political strength to just move ahead on your own. Your own. But most of the time, uh, good governance requires bipartisan cooperation. Yeah. Well, I, I can tell you that Rom had the same respect for you that you had for him, um, very much so. And 
So did your colleagues. Uh, you, I, I should just uh, note that you served as both executive director of the NRCC uh, as part of your career and later as, as chairman of it. I do want to get to um, your public service. So you have a career that has, uh, you know, as I said, uh, politics and, and public service are very much intertwined. Um, you, your first job with Congress um, was with Congressman Mickey Edwards, and you were his district director. Is that right? That's correct. Can you tell me a bit about uh, Congressman Edwards and sort of what was he like? What did you learn from him that you know you take with you today as a? You bet. I, learned, I still in touch with him. I uh, I learned a lot from him. Um, frankly, uh, Mickey was a brilliant political mind, and uh, you know was very significant figure in his era. At one point, he was uh, president of the American Conservative Union. He rose to the, um, you know, the policy commission was number four in the House pecking order on the Republican side in 91, 92. Um, he, when he won in 76, and he almost won in Watergate, 74, he took a seat that the Democrats had held uh, for 28 years. Uh, brilliant politically, uh, you know, born in uh, blue collar uh, side of Oklahoma City, South, uh, it's called Capitol Hill, it's now heavily Hispanic. Back then it was a classic sort of white, blue collar, working class, tough area. Uh, grew up uh, as a Jewish kid, so very much uh, sort of on the outside. I think it always gave him a natural empathy uh, for underdogs uh, and, uh, you know, was uh, very conservative and yet very supportive of the civil rights movement. We always had African-American staffers. He opened up uh, an office after he won uh, in the African-American uh, uh, part of town. Eventually uh, would routinely win, over, uh, very few Republicans do this, would routinely win over half the American African-American vote in his district. So uh, he knew how to be very conservative and very tolerant. And politically, I learned so much just driving him around the district because you know you get those long periods in the car and they're ruminating and talking and uh, telling you political stories and uh, the guy just was brilliant um still is i mean uh, and he's a very you know uh, unusual person in the sense that uh, he's not afraid to take independent stands he'd be very critical right now is very critical publicly of president trump uh, i remember this was the reagan era and he was very much a reagan um, um, supporter, and yet he he differed very much with President Reagan on the line item veto. He saw that as a violation of uh, Congress's power of the purse, and he would uh, get up and take on Reagan all the time on that. And I remember we were going to a Republican County Convention one day, and I said, do we have to get up and tell everybody in the room why they and the president is wrong again? Uh, or can we just let this one pass by? He said, no, they need to understand the constitutional and the, the constitution and the issues here. And of course he was right. Actually, uh, it turned out, uh, and led subsequent court rulings, uh, showed that his understanding was deeper than a lot of us that uh, were just reflexively supportive of the president. So yeah, I never saw Mickey Edwards take a position that he hadn't thought through. Uh, he thought through it in a policy sense. He thought through it in a constitutional sense. But he was also very political. And, and again, he, he won a seat and held a seat for a long time that historically had been very democratic. And, uh, um, you know, again, just uh, and then knew how to operate. I, you know, all the uh, 
the Democrats that uh, were still in the House when I got there that had served with him. I got there about 10 years after he had left, uh, you know, would tell me stories about what a, he was a member of the Appropriations Committee. As my, oh, he's a wonderful appropriator. What a great job he did. He always knew how to make a deal. And so, you know, he had this odd blend of being both uh, philosophically, unquestionably conservative, uh, but uh, very much a, a civil rights uh, Republican and very much a pragmatic uh, policy operator who knew how to, to um, you know, split a loaf. So I, you know, I consider him enormously influential in my own development. And, um, you know, it was a privilege to work for him. You know, hearing you talk about him, um, you could be describing yourself, I mean, as a as a an observer of you and how candid you are, how forthright you are, you know, critical of both parties when you think they deserve it. Um, and that's something that you're known for. And I think you wouldn't you agree with me that in part, I think that's probably why some of your colleagues like you in a leadership position. You are a you're a whip. Um, you're candid with people. You hear what they say and then you, you know, you shoot them straight. That's a that's a good quality in a leadership team member. Well, you're kind to say that. I think it's a necessary quality. Look, uh, you know, politics is about resolving differences at one level uh, and finding common ground. And you usually can't do that uh, in a political situation any more than you can in a personal situation if you're not honest. Uh, and uh, and I think also hopefully empathetic that uh, when you're dealing with somebody that sees it differently, you understand the legitimacy of their point of view, even if you don't agree with it. Um, you know, and and that they particularly if they're you're dealing member to member, uh, you know, they're a member. They got here the same way you did. They got elected. They represent a constituency, and uh, they've got their points of view. Um, and sometimes you do have to tell people. Uh, look, it may look that way from where you sit, but my job here is to put 218 votes together and we can't do it your way and get to 218. Now you can take 70% and come along for the ride or you can make it impossible for us to do anything, but isn't moving forward better than, than uh, you know, not getting anything done at all? And again, Jim, you've been around politics a long time. There are people that come to Washington to make a point on both sides of the aisle are people that come to Washington to make a difference. And uh, I prefer to work with the latter as opposed to the former. Yeah. Um, so you had uh, obviously a great deal of experience uh, in politics and public service before you arrived uh, in Congress. What about being a staffer helped prepare you for being an effective member? Well, first of all, I, I worked with great people. Uh, you know, even though I was Secretary of State in Oklahoma, I was effectively a staffer for Frank Keating because it was a an appointed position, although it had to be confirmed by the Senate. Um, and um, um, you know, number one, I, I was lucky in uh, Mickey Edwards, and, and frankly, even in some of the losing campaigns I was part of. I think of a guy named Tom Daxon, state auditor, got wiped out in 1982. He was a wonderful boss great role model, fine public servant, uh, had held statewide office. Uh, so, uh, you know, number one, I was fortunate uh, to work for good people. I always say, you know, I'm, my rule of thumb is always work for somebody better than you, always hire people uh, smarter than you. 
And, uh, you know, I, I had fortunate to, good fortune to work for people that I thought really were better than me. They were, they were wonderful people and uh, they were gifted public service. And I learned a lot from that standpoint. I also learned, again, how much it's a team sport and how much the success of the principal depends on the quality of people around them uh, and their ability to utilize those people. Uh, you know, this, this is a management uh, sort of thing. You can't succeed with a bad staff. So if you don't pick the right people, you're going to have a lot of problems. And you can't succeed if you don't listen to your staff. You know, I mean, you pick them for a reason. And, uh, you know, I always know, for instance, when I'm dealing with a field representative, I've got a good one when we walk into the room in their area, the, multi, the counties they carry, and they know a hell of a lot more people than I do. Uh, okay, you're a good field representative, and you're taking me around introducing me and building the connections. And I know with my caseworkers, uh, you know, when I get stopped at the grocery store, boy, there's this person in your office and I called with this problem and man, he or she is wonderful. They fix that, you know, and same thing up on the Hill. Again, you, you sort of figure out pretty quickly uh, who the staffers are and they know their area better than you. And I'm, I have a deputy chief of staff, Maria Bowie, that's, uh, uh, you know, forgotten more about defense than I'll ever learn. And uh, yeah, I have two huge military installations and, my district. I sit on the Defense Appropriations Committee. I was on the House Armed Services Committee when I first got there because it was so critical to the district. And so I have a real interest there, but I've got somebody working for me that is twice as smart as me. Uh, and, and that's her focus. So, uh, you know, you, you learn how the staffer understands how these things fit together. It, and it's a huge asset to have served on a staff before you're a member. Um, I always tell, uh, you know, Two of the guys on our side I like a lot uh, are Richard Hudson uh, from North Carolina, Rodney Davis from Illinois. And I knew them both as staff people when uh, Richard was uh, chief of staff for a succession of, of really good members uh, before he went back to North Carolina and ran. Rodney, I knew, even though he was based in Illinois through his political activity, because he always ran the, the victory operations out there. And when I see those guys and they're running for office, they come by the office, uh, I, I, you know, or, you know, whenever they call and that, you know, they're not asking my opinion that we have a leadership pact. They usually are asking for my support in a very tangible way. And I bet heavy on those guys. I mean, good staffers. I, I think of Rob Woodall, who uh, I, I hate to see leaving the current Congress from Georgia. He's a uh, number two Republican on rules. Uh, you know, I first got to know him as chief of staff for John Linder, who was his predecessor. He's been an absolutely fantastic member. Uh, but the, again, they come to Washington so much better prepared, so much knowledgeable with a huge leg up and a real understanding. And quite often they have a network of people that they end up hiring uh, that they've worked with in the past. And so they usually assemble a much better staff than the average freshman does. Well, let me just empathize with your staff for a moment, because as someone who worked for a member who was a former staffer, I worked for Rosa DeLauro, who you are on the Appropriations Committee with. She was Chris Dodd's chief of staff. The reason I, I can empathize a bit is when you work for a member who is a former staffer, <laughs> they know your job better than you do often. And you're kind to say, you know, they know their stuff better and that's where they need to get. But there's no fooling former staffers who are members. You got to really know your stuff. Uh, I, I totally agree with that. Rose is actually one of my very favorite members, and uh, 
Congress. Uh, uh, as a matter of fact, I was emailing Rahm Emanuel recently because uh, I, I follow him still. We still stay in touch. And, uh, you know, I'll watch him on ABC Sunday morning news when he and Chris Christie are, are, are uh, jousting with one another. And uh, uh, we'd had an exchange about that, my observations on what he'd said, which is typical, were brilliant. Uh, and then he said, by the way, you and you and Rosa Delore, the odd couple, who would have believed it? Uh, and uh, uh, that's uh, what we've been nicknamed on the Democratic side of the aisle. But you're exactly right. Uh, she knows the bills uh, better than most members because of that staff background and uh, just absolutely a, a terrific legislator in every way. Let me ask, when you're assembling teams, when you're interviewing people, uh, do you have a favorite interview question that you like to ask? Uh, several of them. Uh, you know, I mean, first, you know, you just ask the, I've got your resume, but tell me how you got here. And, you know, listening to them tell you their life story, uh, you know, is, uh, in, in, is frankly very helpful. Second, I always ask them, where do you want to be in five years or 10 years? Uh, and that's revealing, uh, you know, where, where at least at this moment do they see their future? And then I always ask too, tell me it can be historical, it can be contemporary, uh, doesn't matter who's your favorite politician um, and, uh, uh, you know, political figure, because you're not coming to work in a congressional office without having thought a lot about politics. And so that's very revealing as to who they they pick and, and why, you know, what uh, what figure is it? And uh, so I've, I've learned a lot over the years, but uh, at the end of the day, you know, I also do these interviews with my chief of staff or my and or my district director because we are looking for somebody that we think, uh, you know, can fit into the broader team uh, and uh, that, you know, can can contribute. So look a lot in terms of personal skills. Uh, that That's to me more important than professional expertise. Uh, you know, the, the, the ability to work together and build relationships is the core of the business. It's the core of the office. Um, and if you don't have that, you can be the most brilliant person on policy that I've ever met, but you're not going to succeed here, in, in, at least in our operation, the way we structure it. Yeah. I, I wasn't planning to ask it, but since you brought it up, who is your favorite political figure and why? Well, you know, actually, uh, uh, Robert in American history would be Abraham Lincoln, but uh, it, it's a guy named Robert Peel, who is a British prime minister. Uh, and, uh, you know, I used to be a British historian, particularly focused on the Victorian era. And Peel uh, was a remarkable guy. He was really the creator of the modern conservative party, which he both created and then broke apart during the, what are called the corn law debates, uh, in the 1840s, uh, during the middle of the Irish famine. Uh, you know, back then, England had high tariffs on food to protect um, English farmers and particularly aristocrats that uh, held high interest. And uh, Peel, you know, you go to London, they, they call the police guys Bobby's Robert Peel. And you know, it's named after him. He's the one that set up the Metropolitan Police Force as uh, when he was um, home minister. And uh you know, he he'd thought himself through to a free trade position, thought that was the key to the future. And there's actually a very dramatic moment where he, you know, the, the conservative party, which was then the Tory party, uh, was lined up in defense of landed interests. And uh, 
he basically you know sent a note down to his number two and said you must defend our position i no longer can um, and so he, he broke with his own party uh, they gave the the, uh, the Whigs an opportunity to pass a, uh, a big uh, uh, measure that uh, would repeal the Corn Laws. They couldn't get it done. And so he came back into power, built a coalition, uh, got it done, and then immediately was sort of kicked out of office, uh, stayed around as a major figure, died in a tragic horse accident, uh, was thrown from his horse and it killed him in 1852. But Again, it's just a brilliant career, but the ability to put national interest above partisan interest and, and to reach across the aisle of his day, I've just always admired him and a very far-seeing figure. And then uh, I guess after those those two, uh, Churchill, I mean, you know, I'm sitting here looking at a Time Magazine, September 1940 uh, picture of Churchill that my staff got for me and that's framed and uh, I just finished the wonderful Eric Larson book, uh, The Splendid and the Vile, on Churchill and the decisive year of the war from uh, May of uh, 1940 into the next year or so when, when England stood alone. Uh, you know, extraordinary uh, political figure uh, in the history of, of uh, Great Britain, but really maybe arguably the greatest person in the 20th century. So hard to argue against people like that. Yeah. The, I, I've not heard of Peel, but... Uh hearing you talk about him, it makes perfect sense why you admire him. And with Churchill and Lincoln, they're, they're truly no, no better. Um, I want to ask you a couple of questions uh, that, as a member, you can shed some light on for staffers. Um, one has to do with the House floor. Very few staff members get what are called floor privileges. Um, leadership staff do, and that's about it. Um, I was fortunate enough to have a couple periods in my life when I did have floor pr privileges. It made a huge difference. When I was with the White House, um, thanks to the you know the Article One versus Article Two um, uh, division, we as uh, uh, White House staff did not have floor privileges. Can you just shed some light for staff who don't get to go on the House floor? What it's like there, and how much business is conducted versus how much is just chit chat um and how do the two uh interplay well it's enormous amount of businesses uh conducted um and just to give you an idea you know we're, we're living in obviously an unusual era with coronavirus and i was not happy when we allowed remote committee meetings and uh, we have to do this, the spaced voting and all that and i understand why uh, but it changes the nature of legislating pretty dramatically and actually one of the uh, people that have been on the other side, a Democrat, uh, you know, I'll, I'll protect his name, but we served together on, uh, on one of my committees. Uh, he came, he said, you know, I thought you were full of it when you were making all these arguments against uh, this, but you're right. I mean, we, he said, now it doesn't mean I'm against doing what we're doing. I think we have to do it right now, but I've noticed the difference in my ability uh, <clears throat> to interact on the floor, what I've lost in terms of nuance and context. So, um, you know, a lot of members, if you're a whip, that's where the most whipping is done. Uh, you know, at least the initial checks and some of the discussion. Uh, so a lot of businesses transacted that way. You do judge people by, uh, you know, how they act. You get to know the people on your committees pretty well. And that's the driver for most of us. Most people live within their committee. Uh, leadership lives within their conference. 
but on the floor, you know, you act uh, with, you, you watch people uh, that uh, you don't have a chance to interact with the committee and you really draw opinions as to what they're like by what they say, how they act, who they hang around with. I always say the Congress of the United States is like a small town. And in a small town, everybody knows who ties to church. Everybody knows who gives to the Girl Scouts and the Boy Scouts. Everybody knows who you can borrow a lawnmower from. And everybody knows who will bring the lawnmower back. Uh, and so each day, members make judgments about every other member as they interact with them. And you interact with the largest number, obviously, on the floor. Uh, and so uh, the amount of business that gets done is tremendous. And the impressions that members have of one another, which, after all, shapes whether or not you think you can do business with that person and in what areas you can do business with that person is largely driven by that. And it's probably even more important now than it's been historically because uh, we're a lot more compartmentalized and a lot more polarized than we used to be. And uh, honestly, I think sometimes the leadership of both sides conspired to keep the members from working together across the, the aisle. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I like uh, like to get that sense of my Democratic colleagues. And, you know, you spend a lot of time just kind of like, again, it's like, like high school, uh, you know, looking around, well, who are the cool kids hanging around together? And <laughs> who are the class problems that are hanging around together? And where do they sit on the floor as they plot together? You can learn a lot just by sitting there and watching who talks to whom without even hearing the conversation. Yes, that is a brilliant description of Congress as the as a small town where you know who you can borrow the lawnmower from and who will give it back. Um, I want uh, to ask about uh, something that's pretty sober. Um, this year is the uh, 25th anniversary of the Oklahoma sitting bombing, uh, just a horrible act of domestic terrorism, probably the worst uh, prior to 9-11. Um, you worked for Governor Keating afterwards um, and helped get federal funding um, for the rebuild. Unfortunately, uh, there are other acts of domestic terrorism that, uh, you know, pierce the hearts of communities. I mentioned 9-11, but also mass shootings like Sandy Hook, the Pulse nightclub. Uh, uh, this is the one-year anniversary just recently passed of that mass shooting um, uh, at the Walmart in El Paso. Elected officials are very much judged on how they react to those moments, um, how they bring community together, how they serve the community through that heart-wrenching time. But staff are right behind them, uh, also experiencing shattered hearts. Um, but they, you know, continue to put one foot ahead of the other for the good of the community and those uh, families who have lost loved ones. My question for you is, what advice or guidance could you give staffers in, you know, that circumstance where they're dealing with something horrible and they, like everyone, probably just want to go home and cry? but need to keep moving forward? Well, the uh, the leader becomes, honestly, the person that sets the tone. And um, I was very fortunate. Uh, Frank Keating was less than 100 days into his administration, and he was just a brilliant uh, spokesperson and leader and mobilizer at that time. And, and he just had a, 
instinct from the very beginning of the crisis, what was going on. Matter of fact, I remember that, you know, you remember every minute of a day like that. Um, and um, after I'd heard, I actually felt a shudder. I was coming in the state capitol, which is a couple miles away from the site of the disaster and walked into the back door of my office of Secretary of State and my secretary got on the line or excuse me, walked in the door and said, something terrible's happened. Your wife's on the phone. My wife was about two, three blocks away as a legal secretary. And she was up on the 18th floor of a building. And she said, I don't know what happened, but we've had a massive explosion. I'm looking down. I can see hundreds of people running in the street and billowing smoke. So I went immediately upstairs. I was on the first floor of the Capitol to where the governor's office on the second floor and, for, and, um, and the way the governor's office set up, the press office is up front. And this is maybe eight minutes into the disaster. Uh, and I'm walking through and I know out the, the right, the chief of staff, Clinton Key and, and the governor, uh, Frank Keating, are watching in the press, uh, in our press uh, operation as this is going on. And there's already helicopters circling the Murrah building. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, Keating's watching and the, the, the line on television, this looks like a natural gas explosion. Well, Keating had been an FBI agent and had actually investigated terrorist incidents in the 1960s on the West Coast. Uh, and he looked at that and he said, that is not a gas explosion. That's a bomb. That's probably a car. I mean, he knew instantly what he was dealing with. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, he set the tone. Uh, I remember having a debate, um, early on, because we were in the middle of a legislative session, should the governor stay here and command from the Capitol, or should he go to the front? Keating didn't have any doubt. Elis looked at me, he said, and the chief of staff and a couple of other candidates said, you guys stay here, keep this place running. I'm going down. You need to be where the, the disasters are. Actually, something I later sent Carl Rove, a, a lessons learned memo uh, after 9-11, literally, that night and they did a lot of the things we did one of the things keating did was go to a mosque because there was lots of uh, rumors swirling that uh, this could be a terrorist attack uh, and actually quite the opposite obviously we know it was a, a white nationalist uh group but not only that the first money we got for the relief fund was from a mosque in oklahoma city and keating made a point of uh, going out much as president bush made a point of doing that after 9-11 uh, so from a staff standpoint, you're there to implement uh, and facilitate uh, uh, your boss at a time of supreme crisis. Uh, and it really is, uh, you, you want to give them your best advice, but at the end of the day, it really is at this moment more than any other, their name on the door. And your job is to get everything done that they need done and to take tasks that usually aren't your task <coughs> that they will throw off to you. Uh, and it's to keep the rest of the team moving. And again, I was very lucky because I had a boss that did that automatically. I mean, Keating is one of the most energetic, um, thoughtful, fun. I used to joke. I said, we la laughed every day. I worked for him and I worked for him for four years, except for the two weeks around the bombing. But we also admired him um, and the manner in which he handled everything from press inquiries to interaction with the president. I, I will tell you a quick story. Uh, most people don't know this. Uh, the day of the uh, the incident, which of course is a little after nine o'clock in the morning, about one o'clock in the afternoon, there's a civil emergency management center underground 
in uh, the Capitol complex in Oklahoma City. And so we're there and President Clinton calls. And when uh, uh, Frank Keating had gone to Georgetown at the same time that President Clinton did. Uh, and so President Ke- or Frank Keating, Governor Keating, had been president of the senior class at Georgetown when Bill Clinton was president of the sophomore class. So they actually knew one another very well. And it, of course, made it very easy to have that interchange. And the, the particular incident that stands out in that phone call, because we're all listening in, uh, uh, the president asked Governor Keating, uh, he said, uh, Governor, is there any way, do you have any idea who did this? I mean, we're hearing all these discussions about terrorist attack. And Keating, ever the law enforcement professional, he said, Mr. President, I know you're hearing that, but we have absolutely no idea who did this, no idea about motive or anything else. And, and so uh, President Clinton then says, uh, well, I certainly uh, hope it wasn't a foreigner. And I'm that really pulled me up short. And I thought, well, why in the world would you want an American to do this? And then he added, and this turned out to be very prophetic uh, in t- about 9-11. He said, because if it was somebody overseas, we'll be at war someplace within six months. Uh, which is, of course, exactly what happened after 9-11. So he understood, too. And uh, we could not have had better help. That's the other thing you understand in the disaster, how lucky you are to be an American, uh, because we immediately had not only all the resources of the government, but all the compassion uh, and support of your fellow Americans. Um, and I remember, uh, you know, and, and our public response in, inside Oklahoma itself was magnificent. Uh, people called it and still do the Oklahoma standard. And I remember, uh, uh, you know, somebody, uh, a couple of news, well, this could only happen in Oklahoma, relatively homogeneous population frontier. It's exactly what happened at 9-11. Uh, you know, it's, it's an American response. It's not an Oklahoma response. It's, you know, it's uh, firefighters and police officers going into burning buildings, not running away from them. It's people immediately being compassionate and supportive. And when you have all the resources and all the compassion of a great and good people, which I think uh, Americans are at your disposal, not to mention the resources of the federal government, you are a very lucky person, no matter how bad the disaster is, because almost no place else in the world can muster uh, in a crisis what the United States can instantly put at the uh, disposal of people facing a very difficult time and does and does routinely. Mm. I um, that is such a uh, impactful uh, description of what was a horrible event, um, but also I, I didn't realize the echoes that came out of that uh, that helped inform the response to nine eleven. Um, a did. lot of things, you know. Uh, I'll give you an example. We were the first ones to argue. Uh, you, know, uh, you know, normally on a disaster, the split is 75-25, 75 minutes or 75% uh, of the relief from the federal government, uh, 25 from um, uh, the local area. And we made the argument, and thank goodness the Clinton people were very supportive of it, said this isn't a natural disaster. This is an attack on a federal facility uh, in downtown Oklahoma City. And so this is a federal responsibility in terms of the cost. And, and uh, they, they agreed, uh, which was exactly, by the way, what we did after 9-11 as well. The precedent had been set uh, because that was not a natural disaster. That was an attack on the United States uh, 
the the run of which the people in New York City uh, had to endure. And so we had a special federal responsibility. So there was a whole range of things like that. I remember uh, trying to figure out uh, when I was assigned to try and secure the, the, the money we needed. I said, well, how do we even figure out what we need? And I called up uh, uh, people at the local, the national, the local branch of a national accounting firm. I'll leave them. And I said, I've talked to the governor. I have this much money. I need an audit. I need to figure out what does this thing really cost? Uh, and they did an amazing job. It was even down to the one that really caught my eye was they even got down to how much money the Oklahoma city had lost because the parking meters and several square blocks <laughs> weren't being used and that kind of, I mean, it was amazingly thorough. So we could put a number on the, at least the cost of the disaster uh, quickly. And um, uh, so again, I think we did a lot of things right, but uh, nothing any of us did would have worked if we hadn't had a magnificent leader and a, and a, a visionary in Frank Keating. And uh, he just, uh, he rose to the moment. And again, as I always point out, less than a hundred days into his administration, He's confronted with the largest act of domestic terrorism in American history, and nobody can look back on it and not and not be impressed with how he led and, frankly, how the people of Oklahoma responded. We had a mayor, uh, Jim Norick, who, who was unbelievable. We had, of course, fantastic local first responders, and and people were so generous, uh, you know, and did everything they could. I'll, I'll never forget uh, the Health Science Center south of the Capitol. Uh, in Oklahoma City, I was coming back at about three that morning to get a couple hours sleep at home. Coming down Lincoln Boulevard, there were still people standing outside to give blood at three in the morning. Uh, I mean, people just wanted to find some way to help and, and people all across the country and indeed the world did. Yeah. Boy, that um, uh, those moments as, as as horrible as they are and, and they reverberate uh, with heartache uh, still today, they are also moments when our better selves uh, have an opportunity to emerge. And, Couldn't agree more. I mean, I'm so proud of the United States after 9-11 in terms of the reaction of people there, you know, in New York City and, and then the reaction of the rest of the country and wanting to be supportive and how rapidly the aid package moved through. Um, you know, the Congress of the United States on a bipartisan basis. And, uh, you know, you've got a Hillary Clinton and a George Bush working together, her as a senator, obviously, and him as a Republican president. So you see the best of America in, uh, in situations like that. And, you know, even in difficult times, we're able to submerge our differences in many cases. I mean, look at coronavirus. We're having some, our set of challenges, but we passed four supplementals for $3 trillion in an eight-week period with almost no partisan dissent. Um, and I would argue they've worked pretty well uh, considering the circumstances. So country hasn't lost its ability uh, to work together. And uh, uh, and if you leave it to the American people, uh, the, they certainly do it. I mean, we, we don't do it as well um, politically in their leadership as we should. But uh, they do it on a practical basis. Um, anytime they're confronted with a disaster, you see it instantaneously. Well, you are someone who, who helps make the Congress work and have for a long time. Um, so thank you for what you do. And thank you for being our guest today. You've given us a lot of your time and uh, so many insights. 
I, uh, I've loved having you as a guest and I appreciate uh, your time and all you do. No, you're very kind to say that. Very much my privilege to do it and uh, good to visit with you again. Likewise. Let's talk again soon. I'll look forward to that, Jim. Okay, everyone, I hear the gavel pounding this meeting to a close, which means this episode of Staffer is adjourned. I want to thank you all for listening to the only show created for and about the people who work in government and politics at any level. I do have a quick favor to ask. Please follow, subscribe, and like the show on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Positive reviews are everything in this business, I'm told. And make sure to sign up for episode alerts at staffershow.com and check out Staffer Show on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn.